0: For the last several weeks, we've taken an excursion into Ephesians in order to ask the question, if in fact we are a people who are woven into, as it were, a tapestry of love in the household of God, what does that mean? What does it mean to live graciously, to live lovingly? And so we've departed from 1 John, gone into Ephesians for a bit, and now we're back. We're going to be finishing up with two, two more uh, passages in 1 John chapter 5, and uh, that will wrap up our First John study, which I realize began quite some time ago, but it is really all of a piece, is it not? Anyway, this morning we're going to be looking at First John chapter 5, verses 10 through 13, Whoever believes in the Son of God has testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, there is no man who can proclaim your word in such a way that it really drives into the hearts of people. Holy Spirit, it is by and with the word that you proclaim of Jesus. We ask that you would be the one to speak to our hearts. Show us where this applies to us. Show us where this has meaning for us. And Lord, draw us to yourself, because there's life in no other. Pray in your name, amen. have you ever heard somebody say, you know, how can anybody know for sure that they have eternal life? Have you ever heard anybody say that? It's not like they don't believe in spiritual things. It's not like they don't believe in heaven, but they ask the question, how can anybody even really know for sure that they have eternal life? You know, don't really know until the until the last moment when you come before God and you're standing before him and have to, have to give an account. There are also times when someone might say, you know, I'm not going to believe until God proves himself. I'm not going to believe until God, until God proves to me that there really is eternal life. And then there are others who, after having gone through deep trial or sin or weakness, have said, I wonder if I have eternal life. I I wonder if I ever had it. I wonder if I still have it. All of these questions, I think, are answered in this passage. As we have looked into the book of Ephesians and then considered the nature of temptation and the work of the devil which we did the last couple of weeks. For some of us, that's going to stir up a little bit of instability. For some of us, we're going to realize or come to terms with the fact how weak we are in the face of temptation or how weak we are in the face of the devices of the evil one. And we're going to feel as though we're not sure that we've got eternal life at all. And in fact, even as John has approached matters earlier by laying out in front of us these contrasts of if you know God, then you're not going to hate your brother. And if you uh, love your brother, then you know you have God. Uh, And he sets up all kinds of contrasts like this. The one who knows God doesn't keep on sinning. Uh, But if you do sin, then we have a propitiation for our sins, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so as we are confronted with these things, we begin to ask the question, do I have eternal life? Is eternal life real? Can one have eternal life and know that he has eternal life? This passage that we're looking at is intended to give us assurance. To give us assurance so that we would not, in dismay, drift from God. That we would not, in fact, pull back from the Lord and shrivel or die. So I want to go through it, I want to look at it, and see the assurance that is built into this passage, or that's proclaimed in this passage, so that we may see just what it is God does in order to encourage us. But as I start out, I need to say there's, there's really a kind of a triangle of statements that are made here. And and by that, I mean this. The statements are all linked to one another, not as a logical progression, but as interwoven pieces. And so I treat it as a triangle, because no matter where you orient the triangle, no one statement is more important than the other, but they're all together stating something to us about God's assurance to our hearts. Those three statements that are being presented to us basically come down to this. What God has testified, or that God himself has in fact testified, what he has testified, and then God's call to you. But God's call to you is based upon himself. And God's testimony is never without a call to you. But this assurance that's brought forth in this text is really for four groups of people that I can determine from what's said here. First of all, there's an assurance that's presented, or rather a caution that's presented to the skeptic, the one who sits back and says, I need God to prove this. Secondly, there's assurance that's given to the doubter, The one who says, well, I believe in spiritual things, but I doubt that anybody can really have eternal life or know that they have eternal life. For the weak, the one who says, I I am so fraught with frailties. I don't know for sure that I do have eternal life. Or for those who are wounded in conscience, Who have sinned and their conscience will not let them go. Assurance or caution is set out to all of these. Let's begin with this point, and that is that God Himself has testified. What does it take for somebody's testimony to be valid? You have to trust that they speak truth. You have to trust that they're going to give you a straight shot on something. You have to trust that, that they're not going to waver in their communication. They're not going to waver in, in, their, in, in what they say. Verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. God himself has testified. How many times does God need to say something to make it true? I've said that before and I'll reinforce it in our thinking. God doesn't need to say something five times to make it, it true. Like, when, I'm dealing, when I was dealing with my kids when they were younger. Don't play on the table, I'll spank you. Don't play on the table, I'll spank you. Don't play on the table, I'll spank you. It, typically, it was about five times before I finally took action. So my kids began to learn, well, it's not really true until the fifth time. Right? How many times does God have to say something to have it be true? I'll make you bet God did not say to Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, you really shouldn't eat that fruit. Don't eat that fruit. Don't eat that fruit. Don't. He said at one time, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, you shall surely die. One time. And it was true and remains true. God has testified regarding His Son. God has spoken regarding His Son. And because our hearts are so weak and so slow to grasp, God has spoken over and over and over and over again. He spoke through the prophets of old. He gave them visions and dreams, but he spoke of his purposes. He spoke of his covenant. He spoke of his promises. No prophet spoke out of his own thinking. No prophet spoke out of his own imagination. He was moved by the Holy Spirit of God to speak the things regarding salvation, regarding the covenant, regarding God's holy purposes to redeem He spoke the thing, the the prophet was moved to speak the things that God wanted spoken. But it wasn't just through the prophets of old. Then when the Lord Jesus Christ came, in his baptism, as he was coming up out of the water, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He declared right there that Jesus Christ... Was the beloved Son. And this is not a beloved Son just at that moment because Jesus was baptized. This stretches to both directions of eternity. God is well pleased with His Son. Always has been, always will be. Well, why aren't we? If God's pleased with Him, are we? We're called to be pleased with the Son even as God is pleased with the Son. And then God spoke through the Son himself in his preaching, in his sinless life, in his mercies, in his death and resurrection, in his ascension into heaven. He spoke in his Son, this is my love to you. This is my promise to you fulfilled that I will take you as my own. And then God spoke through the apostles, those who were sent out by the Son, on the day of Pentecost when they received the Holy Spirit, and then through the rest of their lives and in their ministries, even in the way that they died, God spoke to us, and in their disciples, and those disciples after them, in the very words that they pen, which is why we have Bibles they penned words that we might have God's testimony concerning himself and concerning his son and concerning redemption. The only reason we have doubts is because we don't pay attention to what God has said. We pay attention to lots of other things. We'll pay attention to the talking heads on the news. We'll pay attention to the talking heads on the radio. We'll pay attention to... Uh, who knows whoever decides to assert themselves as an expert? But God has given testimony. How would we not pay attention to that? God Himself has testified. And then through the Spirit, as the Word has been preserved for us 2,000 years. 2,000 years the word has been preserved and passed on and translated faithfully so that we have it. And then he testifies in us. As the Holy Spirit dwells in us, he gives testimony that these are the things of God. So God has testified, and this is significant for us. Because we need to understand God repeats it to us over and over and over again because our hearts are hard, our hearing is dull, our thoughts are cluttered, and God is pressing to break through on us that we would hear. That's how insistent his love is. That's how insistent his care for us is. Beloved, open wide your hearts. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. Open wide your hearts that you may hear this testimony and rejoice in it. So what is this testimony that God gives to us? This is the testimony God gave us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I think I need to read that again. For myself, I need to read it again. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That speaks of possession. That speaks of actually having something. Not kind of believing out there. It speaks of actually having something, possessing something. And it says, if you possess the Son... You have life. Search your heart. Do you possess the Son? Is the Lord yours? Does he dwell in you? He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. I don't know how clear, how much clearer the scripture could be. I really don't know. That's pretty direct, pretty clear, pretty unequivocal. You either have the Son or you don't. If you have the Son, you have eternal life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have eternal life. Period. I, there's probably not much to expand there. God extends life to we who were dead in our sins. We weren't just knocked out and breathing badly. We were dead. We were dead at the bottom of the ocean, buried under tons of water, and we needed to be made alive. You can throw a life preserver to a dead person. You can throw it over and over and over again, and that dead person cannot reach to grab that lifesaver. They can't. They're dead. We were dead in our sins. And God made us alive in Christ. He makes us alive in Christ. That's why you have to have the Son. You have to be born from above. You have to be given new life. Raised from the dead. That's why Jesus' resurrection is so important for us. In Jesus' resurrection, we see the power to bring us back from the dead. I see the power to bring me back from the dead. And I see the power to bring anyone back from the dead. If you don't live for God, if you're not living for the Lord, you may say, okay, I'm dead. If you're living for the Lord, that means you have been given life and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Christ dwells in you. And so... That is the gift of God. That's a magnificent gift of grace to us. It is a gift that far surpasses our imaginations. It's a gift that includes redemption. That is, we are saved out of our sins and their condemnation. This is more than mere fire insurance. What it says is that it's not just protection against judgment. It's a full restoration to God who is life. We partake of that life. It's full reconciliation. Biblical reconciliation is the restoration of a relationship between two parties who are enemies. Biblical biblical reconciliation is the restoration of a relationship between two parties who were once estranged. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have Christ, we are reconciled to God. We are brought back into relationship with him, a relationship that is manifest every day of our lives in everything that we do. Now, it's true, we need to be conquered more and more, but that's what life with Christ is. We have been brought from being antagonists, enemies, into being friends with God. And those who are reconciled with God are to be reconciled with one another. We have been brought into sonship. It's not just that we have fire insurance and that we're protected from future judgment. We have been brought into the household and been given an inheritance and a status that is, it exceeds what we had when Adam was in the garden. Adam was a creature living underneath the grace of God, living underneath God's provision, but we've been brought into the household as daughters and sons of God. He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God doesn't have any of this life. That's the testimony. And so the question must be asked, do you have the Son? Do you have the Son and do you have life? And if you have the Son and you have life, is your life increasingly being brought underneath the authority and the control of King Jesus? That's a question that must be asked. So, when you look back over the last year, are you walking with him more faithfully? Is his word sweeter to you? Does his word make more sense to you of your world? Is there more of a desire to trust what he says in his word rather than to trust in other people who give you their opinions? He who has the Son has life. Life grows. Life grows. Well, out of this... There's not just God himself who has testified and the testimony that he has given. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The calling to us is to have assurance in the thing that God has given. That's what the calling is to us. We are to believe into this Lord Jesus Christ. Not just believe about, believe into him. There's an entrance into what he is and what he provides. It's not a one-time placing faith in Jesus and then everything's okay. It begins with receiving and accepting the testimony of Jesus, that he is eternal God and has come in the flesh. But it surely includes more. It means placing full confidence in Jesus to carry you through All the circumstances of life as you look to Him. Faith is a lasting and active power that resides in the heart of the believer. It's a constant bond between the Son of God and the believer.